The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Explicitly called out in his list of what constitutes right speech. And those are that wise speech is not harsh, it is not divisive, and it is not idle chatter. And actually there's one more thing that sometimes comes under the discussion of truth, which is that it should be beneficial. Okay, so it's off, I just want to add a little bit, yes? Slanderous is another translation of divisive sometimes speech that's, you know, or harsh. Harsh or abusive or slanderous, maybe it goes under harsh. The intention to harm with speech. And the intention to create division with speech. And the intention to kind of waste time and stay superficial with speech. I would say are the three of them. Um... Yeah, so just one more point about beneficial regarding truth is that sometimes we think that, you know, we're speaking the truth and we may be speaking the truth of our own emotional state, but is it of benefit to the person that we're speaking to to hear this in the moment? So that's just one more consideration to put out there about uh, true speech. I also want to point out that there's a lot to, to speech. Um, we think of it verbally in terms of what we're saying and word choice, but there's, you know, we speak with our whole body, as I mentioned in the uh, uh, guided meditation. So with tone of voice, uh, gestures, facial expressions, and I don't know that we even know what all subtle communication goes on between people in terms of conveying your state of energy or your... I don't know, we don't talk about pheromones much anymore, whatever those are, but all kinds of chemical and energetic interchanges are going on between people that convey something about our state. So all that goes into communicating. Um, I, was, I read an article once from another tradition that was distinguishing uh, the possibilities of using speech in a way that is, the intention is conforming or the intention is venting or the intention is truly communicating. And so a lot of our speech, if we're just going along, getting along, exaggerating, saying yeah, yeah, you know, saying what's expected, we're actually repressing in a way what we really feel. You know? And then that begins to build up, and then some people are prone to then venting or dumping or simply expressing you know, the, the, the energy behind what you really feel builds up until you just spew it out. And then the third alternative is really communicating in which you're able to actually care what you're conveying to the other person. And the point this article was making is that really what you've said in effect is what was heard. The rest is just, you know, kind of weather <laughs> that's gone by. But and what, what, what has been heard? And that requires keeping the other person in the loop, you know, understanding how your words are landing on them, you know, what, what have they heard in what you said. So these three, these three modes of communicating are, are quite interesting. So the first of the Buddhist categories is not harsh or abusive or I think probably slander is a translation of this one. It's basically using words as weapons. The Buddha says, monks do not wage wordy warfare. This has been going on for a long time. You know, I, there's this 
hilarious passage from the Diga Nikaya that sounds like it could be a very mild kind of internet comment, you know, from today. Uh, someone says, you understand this doctrine and discipline? I'm the one who understands this doctrine and discipline. How could you understand this? You're practicing wrongly. I'm practicing rightly. I'm being consistent. You're not. What should be said first, you said last. What you took so long to think out has been refuted. Your doctrine has been overthrown. Go and try to salvage your doctrine. Extricate yourself if you can. So, you know, this is a... Monks debating <laughs> the Dharma with each other 2,500 years ago, you know. So there's something about the way humans tend to use language as words. And it's so related from this, in, from this core teaching of clinging that we talked about in the very first session about views, clinging to views and opinions, right? And then needing to insist that other people agree with you. We so easily become completely disconnected from the fact that how you re how people really respond to this kind of speech, how people really are persuaded to change their mind. It has nothing to do with attacking a person as an idiot. You know, that's the very first way to make someone cease to listen to what you're saying. So, um, and it also may reveal a lack of actual internal confidence in the truth and wisdom of the view that you're trying to convey. It doesn't stand on its own. It needs to be bludgeoned into the other person. And it needs to be, you need them to agree with you in order to feel confident in your own understanding of what's, what's the truth of it. So harsh is in the tone and the word choice. It's in the physical tension and the emotional state of what's being expressed. Liz talked about different kinds of humor. That's another way where harshness comes into it very, very quickly. And the interesting thing is that the tone of voice is contagious. And that the register of the speech is contagious. So it's often in reaction to hearing harsh and abusive speech that you are immediately tempted to respond in kind. So you might just take a moment to realize how it hits you when you hear the kind of speech or read the kind of speech that's really spoken as a, with an intention to use it as a weapon. Where does that land in you and what does that give rise to in you? So becoming aware of that is important. Uh, the same article that I was referring to pointed out that it's so interesting to realize and it helps with compassion when you're faced with harsh speech how different it feels when you're venting or doing the venting or dumping versus when you're at the receiving end of it. You know, it feels spontaneous and like this is the truth and this is what I really feel and finally I'm getting to say what I want. And, you know, it's a very, it's a kind of gratifying rush of energy when you're the one who's doing the venting. But when it lands on you, you feel attacked and, you know, no chance to respond and so you can just realize this and when you're sometimes on the receiving end of this you can if you can give a little space you can realize that for the other person this is a kind of high energy trip perhaps that they're on and they're perceiving it positively and they may not even be at all in touch with how harmful it feels to you to land on so I just thought it was an interesting reflection how different that is from the producing and the receiving side so I want to speak with each of these qualities a little bit about the inner work that we need to do to work with these qualities. 
So you can begin to notice, of course, your own internal speech in a couple of ways. Probably I'm not the only one who rehearses a lot of arguments that I might need to have with somebody or discussions that I might need to have or points of view I would like to get across. So I wonder, I noticed that I very seldom imagine trying to listen or trying to learn something new. You know, somehow the imagination tends more to how to put your point and get your point across, not so much, gee, I wonder what it would be like to really listen to that person. I've been trying to do some of that recently, imagining other points of view, learning and listening something. But you actually have to listen to learn something new. It's hard to dream up what the other person really thinks. That's probably not what they think. So you can just notice how, how your imaginary arguments go and what's their relationship to real discussions and really fruitful ways of communicating. The voice of the inner critic. You know, we have a whole committee inside of ourselves and lots of different parts from different levels of maturity and different influences and different fears and concerns. And how do these parts talk to each other? You know, there's often a, you know, some part that's very concerned with what other people think and how you're supposed to be and how perfect you're supposed to be and how in control you're supposed to be. How does that part talk to the parts of you that aren't able to pull off these miracles? You know, so uh, is it harsh? Is it, is it uh, sarcastic? You know, I, I've done a lot of work with a sarcastic voice in me that, you know, just sarcasm, that's interesting. The mind is just generating sarcasm and how to be with it and not react to it. So we have a lot of inner listening to do, a lot of work in learning to, at the same, to be our own listeners to be able to listen to all the parts of ourselves that are so prone to come out and express themselves unwisely with other people. We need to do this inner listening so with compassion so that we can really understand what are the concerns of these you know, energies within us that worry about our well-being in different ways, skillfully or not, so that we can really learn to hear out our inner points of view and, uh, you know, understand what's feeling threatened, what's worried, so that we can be a good listener to ourselves, then we have a better chance of being a listener for someone else. And, of course, we, we've talked a lot about feeling energetically. Where is your speech coming from? Is your speech hurried or unhurried? I found this great quote. I'm, it's from some sutta that I couldn't quite find, but it's the Buddha says, the hurried speech, the body tires and the thought suffers, the sound suffers, the throat is affected, the speech of one in a hurry is not clear or comprehensible. So, um, so listening compassionately to our own interpersonal conflicts and then extending that to how we speak in the world. The Buddha says, abandoning harsh speech, restrained from harsh speech, Whatever speech is gentle, pleasing to the ear, affectionate, going to the heart, refined, pleasant to the many, agreeable to the many, such speech does one utter in practicing right speech, non-harsh speech. So the second quality is not that speech should not be divisive. And the Buddha says, 
What he has heard here, he does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there. Thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united, he loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. So this is a skill that's obviously much needed in the world today, speech that is intended to bring concord and not division. So this human tendency to create sides and then cling to your own side is very much in evidence now. And it really goes to the heart of some of these very profound teachings that we talked about in Right View. It's really, you know, you can look very deeply about what is this about creating division and sides. Everyone has this tendency to want to separate themselves from suffering from this basic dukkha in all of its forms and to put it out there somehow, to find a cause for it out there. And then there's this fundamental division of something out there, somebody out there is causing unpleasantness and causing suffering, you know, and I am not that. And then these come to be felt then we take these concepts and these ideas and these abstractions of what we've assigned as the cause of suffering and then we blow them up into something that's solid and real and permanent. It was mentioned earlier, these categories of people by race or gender or caste in the India, you know, arbitrary designations that we then take to be somehow real and generalizable. That's really mistaking the anicca nature, the impermanent nature the way in which real experience is a constantly changing flow and not suitable to these, not matching these generalizations. And then these come to be felt as part of our identity of me and mine and who I am and something that triggers all of our deepest fears every time it comes up. So, you know, there's no denying that there are patterns in our experience. There are traumatic associations that are shaped then by this human tendency to divide the world into us and them. So there's a real need and a definite need for psychological support in finding like-minded people, finding people who've been through similar experiences that you can feel understood by. So not at all suggesting that we don't, you know, need to talk to and share with people that are in some way similar to ourselves. But then we can keep a look and there is this standing together and supporting each other when harm is being done. But we can bring awareness to this process by which these similarities get solidified into like sides at war and where issues begin to be seen in terms of winning and losing and different sides. So you can notice any tendencies to exaggerate the facts in support of your side or, you know, generalize from the worst examples of the other side. We can keep our intention aimed toward healing and concord. And notice when we're using speech to further solidify the concepts that we're clinging to and shut down to nuance in particulars and stop letting in new information. Also, it's interesting to see this divisive speech happening in more, you know, small personal situations. So maybe you're having, you know, it seems like sometimes if there's three people involved in something and two of them get together, they're going to talk about the third person in some way. You know, if you've been in those situations at work, it's just, um, 
you know, and we do have difficulty with someone, and we may need to find a way to help have a friend help us process that. But I've noticed since I've been in the Dharma practice, there's a big difference when you're having an interpersonal difficulty and you need to talk to someone about it. You can frame it that way, you know, that I, it, I don't know, I don't understand this, and I need to tell you this, and now I'm speaking, maintaining truth, as Liz said, now I'm speaking from my point of view. This is how I experienced it. You know, and really with the intention of having the other person help you understand how to hold that context is entirely different than just every two people gossiping about a third person and making little tiny divisions of, oh, we're right and they're wrong about every little thing that can happen so often in office contexts in our world. Um, there was a practice that I've heard suggested many times that I haven't really been able to stick with very long of never talking about a person who isn't present. So when you're with, how often when you're with another person are you talking about somebody else? You know, really being aware of what your intention is and how you're holding. Could you say what you're saying to that person if that person were there? It's a great practice to at least speak in a way that you could say it to them. Or else carefully frame it as this is my opinion and I'm, you know, I'm questioning it. Because it's a way I feel very strongly, but it's so... It's not something I could say to this person, so it makes me question it and getting some help with that attitude. I remember a, a, a story from another Dharma teacher that stuck with me for years that she was in a situation where there was one guy who was very quiet and never said very much, and he was there, and there was a group of people who were kind of prone to talking about people, and they were talking about somebody else and speculating about their issues and problems and what's wrong with that person and how difficult they are. And after a while, this other guy just said, hmm, I wonder why he does that. You know, and it, he just brought in that perspective of, you know, gee, you're talking about a person here who has their motives and their way of doing that. And so I've brought that to mind often when I'm in situations where other people are gossiping and I'm not comfortable with it or they're talking about somebody and just laying on criticism of the other person. You know, really, I wonder why they do that. And just shifting, trying to shift the conversation to really seeing, you know, that person that you're talking about, bringing them into the room as if they were there. So again, the inner work is looking at your own inner divisions and the divisiveness within your own mind and learning how to deal with your inner conflict with greater integrity. And as you do that, you find more strength to stand up for your own wisdom without needing to create sides and identify enemies and allies and you know, help you process your own internal doubts by projecting them onto the whole world. Um, the third property is not indulging in idle chatter. And this has been touched on a little bit. It's, you know, we often get the question when we teach this, well, what about just social exchange? And I think Bruni summarized it very well. It's one thing if you can keep in mind clearly that your intention is to be kind to someone and to, you know, kind of lubricate a social event by, you know, not plunging right into the heaviest issues you can think of. And it's friendly to talk to people. But if you're staying with that motive, 
then you can notice when it slides into something else. And also, idle chatter is quite exhausting. I'm sure you've noticed that the tendency to just talk nonstop is quite tiring. It encourages staying very superficial and actually not getting to know people. Liz touched on sharing, you know, a little bit more truthfully what's going on for you. It reinforces our obsession with trivial pursuits and cultural subjects that aren't all that, you know, interesting a topic of conversation. So in the Buddhist time, topics of speech that were to be avoided, talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, (laughs) towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, uh, etc. Anyway, a list of things. Well, that's right. That's a common response. What's left to talk about? So... Many of these topics, throw in movie stars and movies and, you know, whatnot. (laughs) Throwing in these things, these are the topics that we use for light social chit-chat, you know. But you can be aware of, you know, how often do you get sucked into going along with some, you know, endlessly trivial discussion of different kinds of wine and things like that that really are not in alignment with your values, you know, so you can notice that. You can notice when it's just utterly exhausting trying to come up with the, the next movie that you've seen that's like the movie that they saw and so forth. It's, it's tiring. So the opposite of this is speech that is purposeful and connected with the goal. You know, or I would say speech that... You, it's an interesting skill to work on how to actually get to know people a little bit more deeply than the kind of social chit-chat that we have. So what are some topics that, how, what are some ways to bring up, you know, something that's of interest to people that you can speak about that's not simply idle chatter? And it's also been already mentioned that the inner work involved here is looking at our unease with silence, for one thing, you know. And, uh, of course, we're meditating to calm the kind of nervous tension that's also brought up when as soon as you meet someone, how, how to allow for a little bit of silence. And the skill in allowing a conversation to deepen. And also trusting in this opening up, you know, and trusting in listening to other people, what other people might say if you get into something a little bit deeper than movies. You know, trusting, trusting this feeling without needing to feel reactive or needing to fix it if they have some issues. So learning to listen and learning to talk on a deeper level is involved in uh, working with idle chatter. So I want to leave some time for us to get together again since we enjoyed that last time, apparently. So this time, what um, we want to do this a little bit free-formy also, but not quite. So let's get in groups of three this time. And what we're going to do is go around and around and around in the time that's left. And each person just offer an observation or a comment, something that this whole discussion today has stirred up for you. You know, it could be, it doesn't have to be the definitive statement on it, just, gee, that really struck me and I want to think about that some more, or it occurred to me how interesting this is, something like that, okay? Just say a sentence or two and then go on to the next person. And it's a great opportunity to notice, are you listening when other people are speaking or are you thinking about what you're going to say next? You know, are you feeling nervous about what you're going to say? Are you tending to want to respond to what the last person said? 
you know, that could be appropriate. They triggered something, it's your turn, but we're not encouraging cross-talk and direct response. So you can notice your tendency to want to jump in and respond to what the previous person said, and you can just see what comes around when it's your turn. Okay, so it's still very much the practice of mindful listening and all the points that Bernie had, but we're just going to go around in a turn-taking way. No. On the contrary. You, you can when it's your turn. We're going to take, uh, go around in a circle and take turns. No, you're not encouraged to speak directly to the person in response to what they said. But what they said might trigger a similar reflection in you, or you might want to expand on what they said. So that's, you know, you're not um, directly speaking to the other person. You're offering something to the group. Everybody is offering something to the group, and it could be something that, you know, is related to what was already said. Is that clear enough? Okay. Yeah. Well, we're just leaving it open again. What, some, something that has occurred to you in the course of this day's discussion. So it seems like there were, you know, we've said a lot of stuff, and I'm sure you've had a million thoughts about, I want to work on that, or I've seen that, or... You know, that's interesting or something. So one of those kinds, some response that you're having to this topic of right speech. It could be which of these areas you have the most difficult with or some very short example of what's difficult for you. Some realization that you've had today about a habit of yours that you could look at. Anything, you know, I want to also leave it open, but those kind of things. And just short so that there's time to get around several times. All right? So please form groups of three. So we have a few minutes left for comments about uh, your discussion just now. Would somebody like to share how this was going around in the group or something that came up? Sylvie. Well, I, what struck me that was interesting is it felt like um, almost like a a popcorn-style summary of what happened today. <laughs> and it was very interesting to be refreshed of things that, you know, someone struck someone and, you know, you realize it struck you too. And then it was kind of like a summary. It just mm -hmm. was a nice way. Good. We, we had a, a nice conversation with those two ladies. And uh, uh, it ended uh, about uh, the truthness of what we say. And uh, somebody said, uh, before saying something true, we have to understand or know what is true for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge uh, understanding or work to do for oneself, is to know what is really true, what we take as true or what we don't take as true, or what we take as untrue. And uh, so this is a big job to, to think before we speech, is to, is to, to get uh, what we think is true to be spoken to. Good point, yes. 
I want to say something that uh, has to do with listening that actually has not happened here, but uh, is this on, not on? I have to push a button. The green light on? Green light on? Okay. Uh, Daniel Bollington, who teaches here sometimes, gave four different talks at our Wednesday night uh, meeting at uh, the Monterra Lighthouse, and you're all invited this Wednesday. He's coming back. That's the commercial. And he talked for four times about listening, and the first time was to listen with curiosity and to let go of certainty. And one of the problems that I have, this is that, that one thing has been very helpful to me because when I'm listening to somebody and they start to talk, I, I decide what it is they're going to say. I have it in my head that, oh, they're that kind of person, they're going to be saying this. And I no longer hear what they're saying. So the first thing is listen with curiosity and let go of certainty. And the second thing is that the conversation is a connection and that the, I, I, sh I need to have the intention of connecting to that person by listening. And the third thing is to listen to what is not being said, is the way he put it, which of course is always true. There's always things that are going on that you're not doing. And then the fourth thing, is some Buddhist doctrine that I don't understand, uh, and he calls it not to. And what the heck that means, I have no idea. So anyway, that's my piece. Thank you. Anyone else? Thanks. Or, yeah. I really appreciate the things that, the four teachings that you just reviewed for us. And I'm wondering if the not to is very, very important. And what's, what that may mean is it's, what is important is that where it's coming from, that being in the awareness inside of ourselves is what the truth is and, and speaking from that so needing to stay centered to, to communicate from that so um, I wanted to say a few things that I appreciated um, one was um, getting all the, um, hearing all the concepts. Some of the things were things that were obvious, not like I know, but um, I, I know and I don't know. So um, some of them were f f um, framed in a different way than I do, like um, catastrophic thinking is not being compassionate to yourself. Oh, well, that's a whole, I mean, like I know catastrophic thinking is not um, <clears throat> to anyone's advantage, um, but just framing it, it's not compassionate. Oh well, that's like that's a that's a new way to um, for me to look at look at it. And then I appreciate um, appreciated being able to um, talk to people and be, um, be able to practice um, talking, speaking to people. And then I appreciated um, 
like people's just really positive um, feedback and appreciation. Um, like, oh, you, you thought that? Well, I, you know, I I think that too, or I feel that way, way too. So even though something is in my life, um, and then having someone say, well, it's like that for me too, just um, helps me sort of relax into that a little bit more. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. <clears throat> Do you want to share what we were talking about? Well, you said it so eloquently. You want me to do it? <laughs> uh, yeah. About, the, about the, the film thing? or Well, we were having a discussion. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm completely <laughs> blank. <laughs> Prompted by a question that someone asked her that reminded me that I'll say what I had to say, and if you can please add. But that speaking styles are very cultural, you know? And so we, I think what came up is that we're three women here have been practicing a long time, and that there's a lot of emphasis on being very, you know, soft and gentle and careful and giving lots of time in how you speak and so forth. And I was reminded of another Dharma practice friend of ours who said in the culture he grew up with, if you're not interrupting and stepping all over people, it's considered rude. What, aren't you interested? Don't you care? You know, you're, you're supposed to be lively and getting in there, and that's a way of social, you know, interaction. And I was reminded of a film I saw when I was studying, uh, teaching ESL, of different cultural groups talking about the same topic. And, you know, one of them was like my friend, where they were talking all over each other, and the other group was there'd be long silences, and then someone would say something silences, someone would say something. So it just came up to, you know, it comes back to intention. You know, I think there are a lot of styles of speaking where you're using speech as a kind of joyful, you know, sport almost, you know, and that's an entirely different motive than you might have if you're really wanting to have a quiet talk with someone about something that's difficult to talk about. So that's what I wanted to add. And just intention is the root of everything. And I appreciate the invitation to notice, you know, what the culture of the person you're talking to might be. And those cultures don't necessarily mean different countries. They could mean different families, mm -hmm. different internal states. Um, it's just really so important. And then that sometimes if you've been trained to be so careful about your speech, there are times when you have to be like, for example, you're not going to pull a little kid, uh, you're not going to see a kid reaching for a hot stove and go, now, dear, you're going to go, no. <laughs> you know, so w there is room also for clear, you know, decisive. No. That's it. <laughs> no. There are times when we have to say no. Right. Thanks. Uh, I have two last things. One is, if you, anybody missed it, someone has suggested that we have a sign-up list. To sign up here means you're willing to be contacted by anybody else who signed up in order to arrange dialogues or meetings or something. And uh, so I will email it to all of you who signed up, what the list is. So it's up here. And second, we would like to have a uh, potluck 
T after the January 8th meeting. We've done this every year. It's very nice. So we will bring a few basic things, and you're all welcome to bring some kind of snack or something, and we'll stay later in January and have a nice social tea and snack out there. Okay? And that'll come out in the email list also, but plan on staying longer next time and eating more. <laughs> Anything else? You can talk. <laughs> you may not be able to hear. It's kind of noisy out there, but you can talk. You know what? Let me just mention something. When you just said we can talk, something popped up. And it's, it's a sutta that uh, we have shared in previous years, and uh, it's, it's just a wonderful sutta and a wonderful um, um, directions. Um, so the Buddha in, in this sutta, it says, whenever, is the sutta sutta, and is the one that says, um, when what you're going to speak about cultivates wholesome qualities, increases your wholesome qualities, and decreases unwholesome qualities, then that should be spoken about. When what you're speaking about increases unwholesome qualities and decreases wholesome qualities, then that should not be spoken about. I just wanted to say it is a dear sutta to me. Thank you. Okay, thank you all. Enjoy your month of practicing with this. It's sometimes an extra challenge over the holidays to practice with this. So it's interesting that this falls in December every year, but That's do your true. best. <laughs> okay.